Lord, we cannot thank you enough for your grace. And we know it is simply an extension of who you are. You are a gracious God. And as we've been learning through our study of Genesis, we are in an age of grace. A time of your favor. A time to repent and find you and avoid the coming judgment. So we thank you for your patience. And we lift you up. Please speak through me and through your word to the Bible. Teach us your ways. Deepen our faith and our love for you and for your Son and your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Grab your Bibles. Turn to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. I wanted to get through the whole chapter of 9 of Genesis, like I did last week, Genesis chapter 8, but was not allowed to because there's just too much here. I want to begin by talking about a, a, a memory of mine, and I, I don't know why I remember certain things I remember. I can relate to very much that scene in Forrest Gump where he's on the bus he says, I don't remember this, I don't remember that, but I remember the first time I laid eyes on the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in the sweetest voice I ever heard, and that was Jenny, Jenny's voice. Remember, he's trying to find a seat in the bus, and he says, seat's taken, seat's taken, and she says, you can sit here. Well, I don't remember, why well, I remember this, but when I was in high school, I vividly remember the day when, I know you know who the teacher was, but she said, that we were all going to kind of follow the pattern of humanity. We we're going to get married and raise children. I don't know why that struck me, because that is certainly, that's not a revolutionary thought, is it? You know, for some reason, the way of her words just, I remember that. I think it was because when I thought about my future at that time, I wasn't even really dating I wasn't thinking about who I was going to marry and what I was going to do with my life. I was thinking about maybe I was going to maybe change the world or be someone famous or rich or whatever. You know, we all have these dreams at that age. We're so naive when you're in high school because your whole life is in front of you. Um, but I thought, you know, there's nothing special about marriage and family. I mean, everyone does it. But for the first time, it struck me that I was going to, and we were all. We're going to follow that kind of mundane pattern. Find somebody, hopefully fall in love, get married and have children. And I don't know why it struck me other than the fact that that's just how we're wired. That's how we're created. We're designed. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about this morning briefly in Genesis 9. Is everybody there? Genesis 9, 1 through 7? Okay. Verse 9, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you. 
as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. From every man and from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly, and multiply in it. Now, of course, what's our context here? God has just destroyed everything that has the breath of life in it except the animals that were on the ark and eight human beings. The flood of judgment. And they've just stepped out onto a completely different planet than the one they left. Because while they were floating in the water for those 150 days, what was God doing? He was actually reshaping the planet. Okay? And so, for that 370 days that they're in the ark, they have just stepped out at God's command. And these are the first words that God says to them as they're observing what? Desolation and death. Okay, in a barren wasteland. It's not this Garden of Eden that they had known. Okay, of the lush vegetation and so on. Things were growing, but it wasn't what we grew up in Sunday school, for example, and all, there's a rainbow in the sky, and there was sun and water and mountains and green lush vegetation, and all the animals were smiling and happy and so on. No, no, it wasn't that at all. Okay. But what I want you to notice is this. The very first words God says to Noah and his family are what? Look at the third word. Blessed. And God blessed, my version says. See that? They're blessings. Now, God has just wiped out the planet, right? Why? Because of sin. Sin is highly offensive to him. He didn't have to save anybody, but he did. And he is going to bless them knowing what? What they're going to do. And what are they going to do? And what are they going to reproduce? More sinners. And what's that sin do to God? It offends him. But he blesses them, knowing all this. And that's grace. God was under no obligation. And by the way, it's why we close with that song, Amazing Grace. God was under no obligation to bless Noah and his family. They were only saved by his grace. They deserved to die in the flood, just like everyone else, because the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. He repeated that in Genesis 8.21. And this reveals something about the nature of God. And I wanted to start off with that. Namely, he is good. He is kind-hearted. He is gracious. And this is how he relates to his children. He blesses people. He wants them to succeed, to be prosperous. And so what God does here in these seven verses is introduce principles. They're really, these principles for society, they're really divine blessings. I cannot stress that enough. These are divine blessings as we get into these five uh, blessings that are, are very much a part of today. And they're principles 
for our society. Now, some call these divine blessings um, common grace. And what is common grace? It means that it's, a, it's common to everybody. This morning, what happened? The sun rose on who? Righteous and unrighteous. The rain that has fallen is on the righteous and unrighteous. It's common grace. It's to everybody. Now, these principles that we're going to talk about this morning structure human society after the flood, even till today. So they're not limited to the people who love God, but they're universal blessings for all mankind. And they're broken into four different categories. It's family, food, health, and justice. Family, food, health, and justice. So let's talk about them this morning. First one, procreation. Pretty obvious. Verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then verse 7, As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. God simply reiterates to Noah and his sons what he had mandated to who? Adam and Eve, while in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1.28 and 2.24. He establishes, he says the same thing basically in Genesis 1.28. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And of course, to do that, he establishes marriage, Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So it's family and marriage that God reinstitutes. The foundation of every society is the family unit. A father and a mother and children. And even though God knows what Noah and his sons and his wives will create, more fallen sinners deserving judgment, see, he still blesses them with marriage and family. And it is universally acknowledged that with all the trials that life brings, that the best things in life are what? Love and family, right? Is it love what makes the world go round? Is it love that makes artists write all these songs about love? It is a truly satisfying blessing unlike any other. The highest human joy is in a marriage and in a child and in grandchildren. So the first blessing is marriage and raising a family. And I want you to see how good God is. He lessens the effects of sin by giving us fulfilling, joyous relationships. That's the first blessing, procreation. Now let's get to the second blessing, what I call preeminence. Look at verse 2. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are given. So once again, God reiterates to Noah and his sons what he mandated to Adam and Eve while in the Garden of Eden. Remember what he said to them? Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's Genesis 1, 26 and 28. 
So the dominion of man, his rule was established in the original creation, and it's reestablished here. So man is not only the procreator of all human life, but the ruler of all other lower forms of life. He is truly, once again, king of the earth. But we're introduced to something new here now, something that didn't exist in the original creation. Man rules in a different relationship with the animal kingdom. You see that? Whereas man has had coexisted with animals in a, a compatible relationship, maybe a symbiotic relationship. I mean, remember, they lined up before Adam to be named in the Garden of Eden, and they lined up before Noah to enter the ark. There is now hostility between man and the animal kingdom, and it's characterized by what? Fear and terror. This is a blessing. Okay, this is a blessing. Why is it a blessing? Well, because animals who might harm us are now afraid of us. This is why when an animal crosses over that boundary of fear and terror and becomes a threat to human life, what happens to the animal? It's put down, which is why we have hunting seasons. Deer need to be thinned out, but what will happen if they're not thinned out? They overrun everything, okay? They threaten humanity eventually. Notice at the end of verse 2, it says, into your hand they are given. The entire animal kingdom is for what? The use of man, exactly, for man. Now the Bible stands in stark contrast to movements on our inner earth, such as PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals. Whereas the Bible teaches that man is made in the image of God and unique, PETA and their secular humanistic worldview sees no difference between man and animal. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Their founder, Ingrid Newkirk, said this. There is no rational basis, I'm quoting exactly, there is no rational basis for saying that a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig, as a dog is a boy. It gets worse. She also told a Washington Post reporter years ago that the atrocities of Nazi Germany pale by comparison to the killing of animals for food. And I quote, six million Jews died in concentration camps, but six billion broiler chickens will die this year in slaughterhouses. The magazine Wild Earth came about when the original company Earth First, the radical environmental journal, ceased its publication in late 1990. In Wild Earth, there was an article that says this, if you haven't given voluntary human extinction much thought before, the idea of a world with no people in it may seem strange, but you give it a chance. I think you'll agree that the extinction of Homo sapiens would mean survival for millions, if not billions, of Earth-dwelling species. Phasing out the human race would solve every problem on Earth, social and environmental. There are churches, <laughs> like a church of euthanasia there is, that, that, that believe this stuff. It's an evolutionary worldview. Ultimately leads, this is what an evolutionary worldview ultimately leads to because man is a mere animal with no purpose or likeness to the creator. 
Folks, this is why a biblical worldview matters. This is why things are the way they are. Again, it was reestablished with Noah, and we're living these things out even today. So procreation, preeminence, and now we have what is called provision. Next verse, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Now remember, God gave the green plant to mankind in the Garden of Eden, Genesis one twenty nine. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. So in the original creation, and now in the second creation, I want you to hear me on this, there were no dietary laws. The only people who were ever under dietary laws were those in Israel under the law of Moses. God gave Moses those laws. Why? He wanted to set Israel apart and to teach them to live differently than the people around them. Everybody else, from the very beginning, has been free to eat everything. Okay? Everything. And when the new covenant was ushered in by Jesus, what happened to the old covenant or the law of Moses? It was fulfilled. It passed away. And so now truly everybody, a Jew and a Gentile, can eat everything. Now you may recall originally in the Garden of Eden, man could only eat plants. Why? Because in God's perfect world, there is no death. So you would not kill an animal and eat an animal. So they were vegetarians, Adam and Eve originally. Okay? So every animal and every man in the Garden of Eden before the fall were vegetarian. But after the fall, I think that man began to eat animals. How do I know that? Well, it's probably just based on a guess because in Genesis 4, what is man doing already? He's developing livestock. Animal husbandry. And I think it only seems logical that they started eating the animals sometime after the fall. But here in Genesis 9, God officially authorizes the eating of animals. And this is exactly why Paul wrote to Timothy about food. In 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, he says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. There will always be those who will tell you to abstain from food which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and also know the truth. It was funny when I taught you about Lent and how it's not in the Bible. For years you've, you've observed Lent. People with a certain religious background, I remember in being in school in Texas, they wouldn't eat certain things on Friday because of Lent. The restriction of all this food and stuff like that, these dietary laws, do you see now from the very beginning, it's all good. I mean, it'd be good for you, but it's all good. You're free to eat everything. So before the Mosaic Law and after the Mosaic Law, you have the same standard. Anything that moves and is alive, you can eat. Except for two things. Lima beans and peeps. Lima beans and peeps. I literally get nauseous around the smell of lima beans. And so I say to you, in light of this, this 
this truth that's been around for thousands of years. Go to a store, buy a wool sweater made from the hide of the sheep, okay? Buy some leather shoes made from the hide of a cow. Buy a silk shirt made by a worm. Buy a crocodile purse, put a feathered hat on your head. Take your wife and your children to a restaurant, order chicken, fish, or steak. Enjoy the blessings of God that he has given us through Noah. Everything that grows and everything that moves, you can eat. And that is one nice blessing from God, isn't it? So think about this for a moment. What is God doing? The first thing he's doing when they step out of the the ark and they're surveying this different world, what what is he doing? He is unloading blessings on these people. See that? Do you guys see that? And so God is good. He wants you to... Uh, by the way, I'm free to be taken out to lunch and eat all the fish and chicken and stuff you want to take me out so we can celebrate, put into practice what I'm teaching, right? Now this is also, by the way, these blessings are being unloaded on to everyone, a believer and an unbeliever. So he's saying to them, you can fall in love, you can get married, you can have children and grandchildren, all the while enjoying the endless options of food that are available by a generous God. Please see that about God. He is blessing. He is blessing. He is blessing. Now, let's talk about a a, a fourth blessing. It's called prohibition. Verse 4, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, what does that mean? Well, I was taught early in my Christian education that behind every command of God there are two Ps, provision and protection. God wants to provide you with a blessed life, and God wants to protect you from harmful consequences. And so there are some blessings that come from a, by avoiding certain things. Because in our fallen world, there's a law of entropy. What does that state? Yeah, in other words, things decay. You buy a new car, what's going to eventually happen to it? It'll break down and it'll rust, okay? Everything eventually decays. And in this decay, certain harmful parasites, viruses, bacteria thrive. So if you eat uncooked raw meat, that's the flesh with blood in it, you see that? You run the risk of getting infected with harmful parasites such as salmonella, right? You get salmonella poisoning or food poisoning, okay? And so while God has given generously us everything to eat, he says, before you get carried away, God says, I need to protect you. And this is a common grace, remember, it's given to everybody, the righteous and the unrighteous. And again, God is good, is he not? And because of God's goodness and generosity and his omniscience, he knew that when Noah stepped off the boat, he had a peaceful relationship with animals. He knew if Noah was a flesh eater or not. Because Noah was righteous, he may have been a vegetarian. We don't know. But Noah needed to know what was necessary to survive in this new world. And part of that knowledge were prohibitions that kept him and his family out of contact with death. 
we're only eight people alive, you really can't afford any deaths, can you? No. So what do we do? We cook food. And by the way, what did God give us to help us cook food? Fire. Exactly. Another wonderful provision from God. You with me so far? Have you enjoyed these divine blessings, these principles of society? Good, because now we get into something controversial. This is probably what you'll remember. It's called protection. Look at verse 5 and 6. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it, and from every man. From every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And so God says, since I'm talking about blood, let me say this. I will require the lifeblood from beast and man. That's verse 5. Well, when? That's verse 6. When you shed man's blood. This is a law of God for social protection. It is better known as the law of capital punishment. When God says, I'm going to require your lifeblood, that is nothing more than another word for your death. Require is a judicial term here in the Hebrew. It means compensation or recompense or satisfaction. If you want to literally translate it, it means to avenge. To avenge. So who poses the greatest threat to the life of man? It is not bacteria from uncooked raw meat. The greatest threat to the life of man comes from beasts and from men. And so the Lord, first of all, addresses animals. If an animal takes the life of a man, the life of that animal is to be taken. Well, why? Well, the animal has stepped across what boundary? Boundary of fear and terror toward man. And man is an image bearer of God. And so God requires the life of that animal. So listen to this. I put these verses up here. Hopefully you can see them. This is Exodus 21, 28, and 29. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. The owner of the ox shall go unpunished. Again, where did this come from? Genesis 9. Watch this. However, if, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring, its owner has been warned, yet he doesn't confine it, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. God will avenge the death of a man on the animal, which has broken through the divine fence of fear and terror to kill a man. Even the requiring the life of an irresponsible owner of a, of a habitually dangerous animal. See, the destruction of the animal receives a divine sanction. Pretty simple, right? That's not controversial, really. But then the Lord addresses man killing man. Now, one of the first sins ever recorded was what? Murder. Cain killing his brother Abel. And what's interesting is that God did not require Cain's life. Remember that? Didn't require Cain's death. God was concerned for protecting people. Do you remember after killing Abel that Cain was afraid that somebody was going to what? Take his life. Because anybody who cared about Abel would take vengeance on Cain. And so God recognizes that and promises vengeance 
on anyone who takes Cain's life. He even goes as far as to doing what to Cain? He puts a mark on Cain, another form of protection so nobody would take his life. And murder continues in the line of Cain, his children and his offspring. We read of his, I think it's his grandson Lamech, who boasted in killing a man. And there's no indication in the text that God required Lamech's life either. See, God did not give the divine blessing of protection in the form of capital punishment to the first society. And since the first society was so corrupt that it warranted judgment from God in the form of a worldwide flood, I think it's safe to assume that murder was very common. It was rampant. So to provide protection in this second society after the flood, God introduces something new here. He says, if you kill someone, you're to be killed. He institutes a divine death sentence. And notice who requires this. Who requires the death of a murderer? You have to answer this question. You have to get this point. God. God requires that. You see that? He requires that. It's compensation. All right? It's recompense. And this is a command. This explains why the psalmist writes this. Over a thousand years later, he writes this. For he who requires blood remembers them. God requires blood, life. He does not forget to cry of the afflicted. It is God who demands the lifeblood as compensation. It is, of course, found throughout the Old Testament. Look at this. This is um, the story of, I'll read to you the, this verse here, the first verses 20 through 21. You get the context here. It says, verse 20, Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord. He has also forsaken you. Not a very popular message, right? No. So what happens? Verse 21. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Now you have verse 22 there. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which his father Jehoiada had shown him, but he murdered his son. And as he died, what did he say? May the Lord see and avenge. It means to avenge, to require his lifeblood. So they knew that. A life for a life. And when you get to the New Testament, Jesus confirms this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what happened? They tried to arrest him. What did Peter do? Pulled out his sword and cut off the ear of the slave of the high priest. And what did Jesus say? He said this, put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Now what is Jesus saying? What does that mean? Well, if you take man's life, you have to give your life. I require all who kill to die. And so Jesus upholds the law of capital punishment. The Apostle Paul makes the same point in Romans 13. I put this up here in two slides. Let's take a look at it. 
every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and to those which exist are established by God. You understand that? The governing authorities over us, including, for example, the police, they're established by God. And they report to God. They give an account to God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Verse 3, here's the key point. For rulers, these established authorities, are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for what? Evil. Makes sense, right? Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Now watch. They are what? The authority above you, the governing authorities, police officers, are what? You know what the word minister is? How it's translated? Pastor. There are pastors in the city beyond these churches. They're riding cars, they wear blue, sirens on their top of their cars. They're ministers, they're pastors. What do they do? They're a minister of God to you for good. How are they for you good? If you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does, it refers to these ministers, the governing authorities, they don't bear the sword for nothing, for it's a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So what is Paul saying here? If you do what is evil, be afraid. The governing authorities do not bear the sword for nothing. And what is the sword for? It's an instrument of death. God did not give the government an instrument of death for nothing. Again, they are ministers of God who serve as avengers of God, who bring God's wrath on those who practice evil. Let's go back to Genesis 9, 6. It says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Do you see that? It repeats, that phrase repeats in the second half of the sentence every word in the first half, but just in reverse order. Well, why? It's so this law can be easily remembered. <coughs> it's like what? An eye for an eye and a <coughs> tooth for a tooth. Whoever sheds man blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And watch this. And by man your blood shall be shed. Man is the instrument of God's wrath under divine mandate. Man is the weapon of God's vengeance in human society and murders. It is responsibility, hear me on this, of humanity to uphold capital punishment. This is not personal vengeance. Scripture forbids personal vengeance. But societal vengeance is prescribed under God's law for man's protection. It is a divine blessing. Now, one other point about capital punishment. The scriptures do not apply this to cases when someone takes another person's life, say, in self-defense or involuntary manslaughter. You can read about it all. There are specific criminal laws written in the law of Moses that address some of these issues. But the foundation because we're talking about foundations here, of a functioning, civilized society is what? Procreation, marriage and family, preeminence, man ruling over all things, 
okay? God's provision of all things. Everything is good for you to eat and so on. Some prohibitions. And now what? Protection. Societies cannot thrive. They don't last if there is anarchy. Amen? So there are these protections, these blessings that God has given us. Now, it is unpleasant to think of taking someone's life by lethal injection or electrocution, right? No one likes to think about that. But the law of capital punishment stands as a deterrent to murder. It is a foundation to the stability of a civilized society. It is a protective power that is a necessity determined by the Creator for the blessing of His creation. You cannot be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth if there is a threat, a constant threat of your life. Now there are those who say capital punishment is not a deterrent, and they'll cite psychological and criminal studies, but they are wrong. Well, why? Why do I say that without any hesitation? Because dead people can't kill anymore, right? Murderers can't kill anymore when they're dead. But for the sake of argument, let's say that these people are correct and that God is wrong. The threat of capital punishment is not a deterrent. Well, what do the facts say? Now, what I'm going to share with you took about five seconds to find on the internet. And it's all, most of these examples are from last week. Okay? On April 26th of 2023, Catherine Dunlevy of the New York Post wrote an article entitled, Murderers Jumped 10% Since 2021 in Major Democrat-Led U.S. Cities Thanks to Soft on Crime Policies. In the study, she quotes Chidki Okim, an assistant professor at Western New England University. They just did this study. This is what they found. As a response to the social unrest, and of course the social unrest is talking about what happened with George Floyd in 2020 and all that, some officers, police officers, ministers of God, have embraced de-policing, which is the idea of not engaging in proactive policing practices in order to avoid increased scrutiny and censure. In other words, the police are under so much of a microscope that what are they not doing? Their job. And they went, he went on to write this. I underline this in my notes here. Without pronounced police presence, violence proliferates. Now, is that a radical thought? How many of you knew that? Raise your hands. As a common sense. Now, the article after this study also cites University of Central Missouri professor Greg Etter, who points to progressive policies such as defunding the police and implementing no-cash bail as major contributors to the rise in the national homicide rate. And so, not surprisingly, the researchers disturbingly warned that the rising murder rate shows no signs of decreasing. That's a national study. Let's go local here. The Seattle Times reported on February 7th of 2023 in an article that violent crime has hit a 15-year high. 
Now that's shocking to us, right? I quote, the increase in crime overall reflects the spike in violent crime that began in 2020 and shows a little sign of dropping back to pre-pandemic levels. Homicides are increased by almost 25%. But what happened in 2020 that kicked off this violent behavior? The defund the police movement in response to the social unrest after the death of George Floyd. And what has happened since then, and I didn't know this until I researched this, is that you have district attorneys, for example, in Chicago, or mayors in Chicago. You have district attorneys in New York, and a district attorney in Los Angeles. And they have instituted no-cash you know, bail issues, and, and, and they've, they've taken violent crimes, murder crimes, and knocked them down, for example, to misdemeanors and so on. They're soft on crime policies. Okay? And why are they doing that? racial inequity, as they see it. So in other words, what they're saying is, is that the disadvantaged people, people of color, whether you're black or brown or yellow, and what I mean by that is Indians, like not Indian, like from India, somehow they get excluded from this, and, and, and Asians do. They're lumped in with white people, but you have black and brown, black, Hispanic, and Indians, American Indians, those people of color that are disadvantaged, the laws really don't apply to them. Murderous rates are knocked down to misdemeanors. Let me give an example of this. This is ridiculous I'm even reading this. But in one of the most dangerous cities to live in America, this happened on April 16th of 2023. Did you hear about this? Teens face only misdemeanor charges of criminal trespassing after crashing stolen car and killing an infant in Chicago. That's by Allie Griffin, April 23rd, 2023. It was all over the news if you didn't see it. A 17-year-old and a 14-year-old stole a car, drove it, ran it into a, a you know, didn't stop at a light, hit this van, and, and killed this, this infant. Now, I don't know the law. That's a... a, a it's manslaughter or involuntary, whatever it is. They broke numerous crimes. They don't have a license to drive, most likely. They stole, and now they've committed murder. And it's now a misdemeanor? You don't hold people in jail for a misdemeanor. They are out, I believe, free. So when these teens are released... What is to prevent them from committing more violent crimes? What is to prevent people from taking stuff out of Walmart or Target or these stores that we see every day? Go to Lowe's and try and buy some tools. You can't because they're all locked up because what are people doing? Walking out and stealing it. There's no soft on crime policies. But let's just talk about murder. In Chicago, where this happened, these two teens killed this infant. What has Chicago seen? A massive increase in murder rates. The places in the world where there is no threat of capital punishment are unsafe. And they are unsafe 
And this is just ridiculous because man has decided to reject God's divine blessing of capital punishment. So life in this new world after the worldwide flood is started with an outpouring of blessings. Procreation, the blessing of marriage and family. Preeminence and the blessing of ruling of all creation, plant and animal life for our enjoyment. Prohibition and the blessing of avoiding potential life-threatening bacteria. <coughs> Protection and the blessing of living in a civilized, safe society because of the deterrent to murder. And murder is the ultimate crime against the highest of God's creation. This common grace, these divine blessings, they're there for a reason. Yes, to bless us with a life, but also they demonstrate the patience and the forbearance of God that is meant to lead us to repentance, to solve our biggest problem. I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior to deal with my sin problem. That's Romans 2, 4. This is God's goodness for all mankind. So what I want you to do simply is this, before we close with this song. These are blessings. Praise God for those blessings. Amen? Because they're not, we don't follow these blessings, I'm, we are living in a world now that I, every day it seems like I don't recognize it anymore. But those are blessings, principles for a functioning society given to us by God who was offended by the sins of the previous society and knows we're going to commit those same sins and he still blesses us. God is good. Let's pray. Father, as we worship you this last song, Lord, be glorified. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.